I wanted to have you on. Obviously, we're talking all about the magazine today. This was your first volume of the Hodinkee magazine as a member of the team. It's my name in print, I think, to the uh, Steve Martin classic, The Jerk, where he says, my name in print, things are going to start happening for me now. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Palmer, and this is Hodinky Radio. Feels really good to be back this week, and not least of all, because we've got a really exciting day here in the Hodinky universe. We've launched Volume 7 of the Hodinky magazine. I truly can't believe we're on Volume 7. Uh, but despite the uh, tougher-than-usual production environment, I'll say, with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, we've managed to put together a really amazing issue. I'm super excited about it. Uh, if you haven't already seen the announcement, Go check out Hodinky.com, order yourself a copy. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really proud of this volume. But we wanted to offer you a little bit more of Volume 7. So for this week's episode of Hodinky Radio, we're going behind the scenes. I've got Danny, I've got Jack, and I've got Joe. And each one of them is going to give us some insights into what went into the stories they produced for the issue. So to start things off, we've got Jack talking about reference points, which he did on the iconic Cartier tank. He's going to share some of the little historical tidbits that even he didn't know uh, going into this. We've got Danny, who interviewed a ton of collectors for this issue, uh, watch collectors and otherwise. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about what he learned about the passion behind collecting. And then to finish things off, we've got Joe Thompson, who speaks with Seiko's CEO and president, Shinji Hattori. His family founded Seiko. Uh, it is literally in his blood. And he's making some pretty big moves on the grand Seiko front. And Joe gets into all the details of why and what and what we can hope for in the future there. So whether you've already read the stories or whether you're still waiting for your copy to arrive, uh, there is a ton to learn here. We really go beyond what's on the printed page, and I think you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's do this. Hey, Jack, good to have you on the show. It's good to be back. So uh, the reason you're here is that the next edition of the magazine is coming out, the next volume, volume seven. Uh, and in it, you wrote the reference point story, which is something we do every issue. It's a super deep dive into a historic watch. And uh, for this one, we picked one of the most historic watches, the Cartier tank. Yes, we certainly did. When we decided we wanted to do the tank, it was a no-brainer that you were going to be the person to write this story, the person on our team who who needed to handle this. Uh, you've literally written the book about Cartier, um, and I, I say that uh, in the least cliched way possible, if that's if that's doable. But yeah, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about, like, I'm curious, before we get into the story, just your personal relationship with Cartier and with the tank in particular? You know, to me, Cartier represents as a company, it represents a certain kind of approach to watches and to watchmaking, which is not, I don't know that it's necessarily unique, but I think that it is um, a very, very special case of doing something with a real commitment to producing refined, elegant designs in which sometimes there are quite fascinating mechanisms, but the mechanisms are always at the service of creating an overall aesthetic effect. And, you know, Cartier in many ways kind of was around when the whole concept of 
luxury in the modern sense was being invented. Um, they were there during one of the most important renaissances in watch design and in, in, in the history of jewelry design, um, late 1800s, early 1900s, when the, you know, the face of how these things were done was really changing. And um, there's a romance to Cartier, to the history of the company and to the people that uh, has always really, really resonated with me. And I've been in love with the brand. I've been in love with, I've been in love with their history and I've been in love with the tank um, and, and other watches that they make for many, many years. And I think just in terms of uh, the creation of sheer beauty, they've done so many things in uh, such an interesting historical context um, that really are, that really transcend the whole notion of watch design. They're, they're, they're a company with an unparalleled capacity to reduce, I mean, you know, listen, not everything that they produce has been a home run, but 150 plus years, you can't expect everything to be a home run. But at the same time, they have a wonderful, wonderful ability uh, when they're informed to produce these designs that look as if they've always, they, they look inevitable in a certain sense. You know, they look as if they have been around forever, as if they, you know, fell from some, you know, platonic heaven of watch design, you know, more or less completely unchanged into the physical world. And um, there's, there's, there's something about them that is so compelling on every level and represents such a high degree of Com real commitment to creating really beautiful objects um, that I, th I think it's very, very hard. If you're moved by that kind of thing, it's very hard to be around one of their watches and not, and not find yourself, uh, tra you know, trans transported just a little bit. Inevitability is a great word here. Um, and like when you look at a basic tank, and when I say basic, I mean a tank normal, a tank Louis Cartier, your basic um, sort of either rectangular dialed or square dialed, but rectangular profiled tank. Um, it feels like a thing that had to have always existed. Like, I I really struggle to imagine a world in which this watch doesn't exist and doesn't exist basically in its exact form. Like, having that perfect rectangular uh, chapter ring, in scare quotes, because it's not a ring, um, but that chapter box, I guess, that railroad track, at the center with the Cartier name inside and sort of the long hands with those nicely spaced Roman numerals, that little bit of white space at the edge of the dial, like that just feels so perfect. And I'm not trying to, you know, log roll for, for Cartier here, but like it really does just feel like somehow in 1917 when they designed this thing, like they just nailed it in a way that leaves very little room for improvement for themselves and for others. Like there's a reason why many people refer to all rectangular watches as tank watches, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get a little bit into that early history. So we, we think about, you know, 1917 is the date of design. The first ones were sort of like presented publicly in 1919. So no matter how we slice it, the tank is over 100 years old. But can, can you give us a little insight into to those early days, into the, the birth of the tank and how this first tank normal came about? Uh, sure. The, um, the tank is supposed to have been inspired by the profile of an actual tank, uh, I believe, a Renault. And uh, there's a legend in Cartier that General John Pershing, um, Blackjack John Pershing, uh, was given a tank prototype, which if that's true, uh, that would be the first tank that uh, ever existed. But there, there, um, there are a number of things from Cartier which have been lost to history and which it would be wonderful to find. Maisie Plant's, uh, you know, double strand of pearls um, that she got in exchange for uh, what's now the Cartier Mansion, uh, you know, is, is another example. Um, 
And uh, that's, uh, that's really, that was really the origin of the tank's design. It was a, a sort of a radical simplification of the profile of a military tank. Um, and, you know, of course, its most essential characteristics are the two brancards of the two bars on either side of the case. Um, and one thing that really fascinates me about looking at these early Cartier wristwatch designs is that, you know, the, for the, uh, the whole question of how to attach a watch to the wrist was, you know, was far from a foregone conclusion back in those days. A lot of things were still being worked out. And in a lot of respects, Cartier produced the first truly modern wristwatches in the sense that these really were designed from the beginning to be worn on the wrist. Of course, there were other manufacturers doing similar things, but a lot of early watches that were worn on the wrist were what, it, uh, what historians call wristlet watches. They were essentially pocket watch movements and pocket watch cases that it had lugs soldered to them. You run a leather strap or a cloth strap through it and you have a wristwatch. But these were clearly designed, uh, you know, first and foremost, um, originally and primarily for the wrist. They're not adaptations of pocket watch designs. And that particular period was one in which um, the, the, the wristwatch, in, in the sense that we now understand a wristwatch, really was born. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I think people think of the tank primarily for its its rectangular shape, but that's a thing they don't give it enough credit for is, you know, in some ways the tank really is the first like purpose-built industrially like scalable wristwatch, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would call it necessarily industrially produced. It was um I mean, this is one of the funny things about the tank, you know, it's it's be, it's it's a design that is so ubiquitous in our minds that we think that uh, it must have been produced in large numbers, kind of going all the way back to the beginning. But, uh, you know, they were made in very, very small numbers. And Cartier back in those yeah, days. Yeah, that's true. You know, Cartier back in those days was, uh, it was it was three three brothers uh, and three locations, and that was it. And these things were, um, you know, if you want And wanted, those locations were London, Paris, and New York. Correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, we had, um, uh, you know, and, and at the sort of at the top of the pyramid was Louis Cartier in Paris, and Louis Cartier was really, you know, each of the each of the three brothers had their own competencies. You know, Jacques Cartier was a he was a, he was a, a great traveler. He was wonderful at sourcing, you know, large and usual gemstones. You know, back in you know, and back in those days, there were a lot of large and beautiful gemstones going around. Um, you know, partly thanks to the Russian Revolution and partly due to other historical effects. You had Pierre Cartier in New York, uh, who was a brilliant business person, and uh, you had Louis Cartier in Paris, who was. Um, he, you know, he's been described to me um, actually by Francesca Burkel Cartier, who wrote uh, this wonderful book, The Cartiers, which is a, you know, kind of a hidden history of her, her family and her ancestors. Uh, he was sort of the Steve Jobs of, uh, of jewelry design in that he was a, an absolutely brilliant designer. He was 110% committed to beauty. He had 110% confidence in his own taste and judgment. Um, he was a perfectionist. But he was also a really terrifying individual to work for. Uh, he was he was he was a, you know perfectionistic uh, to the point of uh, you know driving his driving his workshops and, and the designers who worked for him absolutely crazy. But you look at the history of the tank, and you know under his um, creative reign at Cartier, it was one absolutely beautiful design after another. You know the centre, the centre, the allongé, the tank américain. Um, the, uh, the the tank normal, of course, and the tank Louis Cartier, you know, as well as as well as lots and lots of other watches. These were all you know created under his supervision. So suppose it's 1920, 1922, and you want a tank, you have to go to either Paris, London, or New York. Uh, you have to be known to the company, and these things were not held in stock. They were made to order, uh, and in in relatively small numbers, uh, especially initially. I think the first year of actual production of the Cartier, they made uh, I think maybe six of them. So 
you know, and, and right up until the, the 1960s, when the family began to divest itself of the company that their ancestors had, had built, that their, you know, grandfathers and great-grandfathers had built, um, tanks were made, you know, in, in, in pretty small numbers and usually to order. And this is one of the things that actually makes them difficult to collect. Um, there just are not that many uh, vintage Cartier tank watches out there because they never really were an industrially, uh, you know, produced product. They were, they were all bespoke to a certain level. And um, you can't collect a particular model terribly successfully because, you know, almost all of them are, are one-offs to, you know, to one degree or another. Yeah, I, I think that kind of like, I guess, limited nature of the tank makes it makes it interesting in those early days. And it's it's something that not many people think about, as you said, but that, you know, you really had to like go to one of these three cities to get the watch and the watch you could get would vary kind of wildly like year to year um and so not only is it hard to collect them now but even back then it was it was hard to say like oh yes next year i will sail across the atlantic and go to paris and buy myself a tank allongé like you might get to paris and it's just not available to you like that might just not be possible yeah like i said the amazing thing about these uh about the tank is that you know it was uh it was decades before they were really well i don't know about decades but you know for a long long time they really weren't held in stock you had to you had to order them it would be made for you so it wasn't as if you could just walk into um you know cartier paris cartier london cartier new york cartier new york and say oh you know i'd like i'd like a cartier tank watch and they you know they they pull one out of the safe and uh, you know it's serial number such and such, and it's yours. You know the reply would be, "Oh, Madame or Monsieur, thank you so much uh, for your interest. Uh, we can certainly create one for you. Come back in, you know, several weeks, a month, however long it, you know, however, however long it took to make." I want to I want to touch on a point we we hit on a little bit earlier, and I want to really explore. It. And that that was again this idea of the inevitability of the design of the basic tank, and the fact that the Normal and the Louis Cartier. That design language was set pretty early on and didn't really change a ton. So the way that Cartier innovated on the tank rather than, you know, trying to quote unquote improve on that original formula was to introduce new variations, things that took the same ideas and kind of twisted them and played with them in the way that that Cartier as a design house can do in a way that almost no one else, if anyone else can. Um, and, And so, you know, we get models like the basculant we get models like the savonette we get the allongé the centre the american the asymmetrique all of these these variations that are they're tanks but they're substantively different than the flat square or rectangular tank that that people know so that long-winded setup is is prelude to the question of in in doing your research for this reference points was there any model that you had kind of like forgotten about or you know don't really think about that often that you kind of rediscovered uh, and kind of fell in love with all over again? I mean, you know, I have to say one of the models that, well, one of the models that I'd really, um, I guess, just missed in my previous research into the history of uh, the uh, the Cartier tank was the uh, uh, was the eight day from the 1920s, which was actually not mm. a tremendously huge watch. I mean, it was not what you think of when you think of an eight day uh, of an eight day watch. And I, I have not had an opportunity to do any more in-depth research, but I really do wonder if that was actually the first really long power reserve, uh, you know, purpose-built wristwatch. I mean, there were, you know, seven day and eight day pocket watches before that, of course, but, you know, to get, to get an eight day movement into a case that's, you know, relatively small, you know, that really looks like a perfectly respectable tank dress watch. Um, I thought that that was kind of a miraculous thing. 
Um, two models that I really sort of fell in love with again while doing research for the piece were the tank à guichet, uh, which is uh, the tank with the um, with a digital display of the time in a, in a little window, and the tank basculant, which is a reversible watch. Um, and I think they're just both so tremendously, tremendously charming. You know, the uh, the tank à guichet is just such a a classic piece of minimalist design. You know, it's it, it's there's there's really almost nothing there except the window for the time. And it just it just uh, uh, radiates a purity and simplicity, a perfection in the placement of every element. You know, something like that for something like that to not just quote unquote work, but for it to be actually exciting, which I think the tank aguiche is. Uh, everything has to be right. There's no margin for error whatsoever in the proportions and the size of the windows and the size of the case, thickness of the case. Everything has to just be absolutely perfect. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And um, you know, Cartier nailed it. And I would have I would have loved to be. I think of all the tanks. You know, I love the Baskin lot, but the Aguiche is the one that I wish the most I were a fly on the wall for the design process because I just, I, you know, knowing what I know, what, how difficult Louis Cartier could be and what a, what a perfectionist he was, I just imagine him saying over again, no, no, no good. This is no good. You bring me, you bring me garbage. I make two watches better than this in the toilet every morning. Get out. This is what we pay you the big bucks for, Jack, are, are your, your vintage Louis Cartier impressions. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I stole that line from from uh, the one uh, from um, Anthony Bourdain. Actually, who uh, uh, was something that one of his teachers at the um, at the Culinary Institute of America used to say. This old old, old school French guy. He would, you know, he was he was chewing out some uh, some one of the students in the morning, and uh, or, or you know, in one of the cooking classes. And he said, "I make I make two chefs better than you in the toilet every morning." Tony Tony Bourdain, the patron saint of anyone who writes or speaks or is on camera for a living. It's one of the most creative insults that I've that I've ever heard. But yeah, the, uh, <laughs> it's I I think I mean, if I absolutely positively were forced with a gun to my head to pick a single single vintage tank model, there's a very very good chance it would be the Aguiche. You know, every year Cartier's been doing these pre-bake collections. You know, every year the last few years, I mean, uh, have been doing these pre-bake collections where they pick a model from the archive that year, they re reinvent it, uh, they release them as a, a core set of limited editions, usually pretty small numbers, especially as far as Cartier is concerned. And this year we got new tank asymmetric models, uh, and they're really stunning, aren't they? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I had an opportunity, uh, Ben and I had an opportunity to go to Paris before everything shut down and actually uh, you know, have a presentation in person uh, and I mean, I, I, I am sure I gasped audibly when they showed us uh, the watches. I mean, they're very expensive. Don't get me wrong, but they're they're just, you know, I mean, they're they're amazing. And the wonderful thing about all of these variations on uh, on the tank is that they all look like tanks. You know, uh, they all yeah. really, they all really look like tanks. Um, you know, that's a really good point. It sounds simple, but it's not. No, no, uh, it's it's not it's not 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 in the least bit simple. I mean, you know, a, a, a full time senior position at Cartier is the person responsible for making sure that the designs are actually they have the look and feel of a Cartier design. And this is this is sort of separate from the other product development uh, positions. It's separate from you know uh, uh, you know from most from, from the other design positions. And you know, this is someone who's responsible for just looking at every single design that comes out of Cartier and saying, "We, oui, this is a Cartier." Or non, ce n'est pas une Cartier, and uh, the the fact that they have have produced so many different variations on the tank over so many years that have the same um, chicness, the same degree of elan, is I think just really amazing. You know what I just learned? I just learned 
that Jack Forrester has has a dream job out there, and that is to be the way no guy at Cartier. Like we just need a business card that says Cartier, Jack Forrester, and then underneath it in slightly smaller type, it says we oui, no, and that's it. That's your job. We oui, no. <laughs> that is kind of a dream job. I mean, um, there 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 are. Um, very few companies that I ever think about and I think to myself, boy, I'd like to be part of their creative process. I mean, you know, Hodinkee, if you're a watch writer, is a really fabulous place to be. And, you know, I mean, Stephen, you and I have worked together for quite a few years now. I mean, I, I kind of get away with murder. I largely write about what I want to write about. You know, nobody tells me what to do, at least not very often. Um, but the stuff that Cartier produces is so fantastically beautiful. I mean, can you imagine being part of the design and creation process on this stuff? No, not at all. And I mean, I've I've told stories like this before, but like anyone who has not shopped at Cartier, like if you have an opportunity to do it and you can afford to do it, go go shop at Cartier. And like, I'm not saying this because they're an advertiser with the magazine or because, you know, I have friends who work there. Like those things are both true, full disclosure. Uh, but like I say that because I have been a customer. Like I have walked in the door and sat down with my wife and paid full price for a gift. And like... I have never seen my wife almost cry in a store before. Like, that is just not who she is. Uh, but, like, that is what Cartier does to you, you know? And you get in there, and all of a sudden, those, those you know, all those zeros next to that dollar sign just, like, don't matter because the stuff makes you so damn happy. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty miraculous thing to be able to do with, like, what are ultimately consumer products. Um and I don't know. I mean, like, I, I know you and I both own Cartier watches. Um, I do not own a tank. I own a, a Santos. Um, and it's a quartz Santos. It's, you know, one of the less expensive watches that Cartier makes. But uh, I just put that thing on, and I feel like the king of the universe yeah. every single time. Yeah, I, you know? I feel the same way. There's, there really is something uh, something quite special about Cartier. I mean, look, um, there there isn't a single watch out there that absolutely everybody uh, loves, well, Except maybe the Speedmaster. That's that's uh, that's the saying around. <laughs> that's one of the basic rules of watch journalism, right? It's like uh, yeah, like a restaurant critic saying everybody loves Italian food, everybody loves the Speedmaster. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just you, you, you know you put it on and uh, and uh, you feel something. You feel something special, and it's true pretty much of every product that they make. Yeah. Well, I I think that's that's an interesting way to transition to the last thing I wanted to ask you today, which which is. This last little section of, of reference points, you know, it's mostly broken out into these these sub chapters, maybe we'll call them or chapters, each of which captures a model or a collection of models that represent a period of time in Cartier's history. And, you know, the last little bit, you you look at what's happened over the last maybe dozen, dozen and a half years, and then you gesture to the future. And I, I wonder for you what do you see looking forward for the tank in terms of what Cartier can do with it, what it's going to continue to mean, all of those things? Like, what what are the next 20 to 50 years of, of tank like? I mean, uh, what I would, obviously, they have a lot of stuff, uh, you know, still that they could do in terms of, well, what they did this year with the asymmetrique with stuff in the Privé collection. Um, there are a number of the vintage models that are not in production that I would love to see come back either as limited editions or as permanent additions to the collection. Uh, I would love to see, you know what I would love to see is a, um, a bespoke tank and a, you know, a sort of a 
customization system for the tank. Not necessarily full-on bespoke because that gets um, unaffordably expensive, you know, very, very quickly. And these are already pretty expensive, uh, you know, pretty expensive timepieces. I hasten to add, I think worth it in terms of history and in terms of the satisfaction that they represent. But you know, they're, they're, they're costly um, if you're just sort of looking at what else exists at that level of pricing. Um, so I, you know, making a, a completely bespoke Cartier tank would probably be an expensive, um, a very expensive undertaking, but having some sort of customization system, I think that, you know, really respects the DNA of the tank, really respects the history of Cartier, really respects its design competencies, but lets you have something uh, that is in some sense a collaboration between your own tastes and those of the maison, I think would be, uh, I think that, I think would be really fantastic. Um, and I want them to bring back the Aguiche. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think no, honestly, if that came back, they could just like, it would be a shut up and take my money situation for me. Yeah, I mean, I would just, you know, start selling all of my furniture and, you know. Yeah. And I, I would say to my wife, come on, look, it's so nice. <laughs> I'll never be happy until I own one. But you know, it's it's funny. Um, you were talking earlier about the experience of shopping, shopping at Cartier. And even if you're not going in with anything specific in mind, I think that anybody, you know, who loves beauty and who loves the history of beauty um, and who wants to really understand modern, you know, the, the birth of modern luxury from the ground up. You know, you owe it to yourself. If you're in London, go to New Bond Street. If you're in Paris, go to the Rue de la Paix. If you're in New York, you know, go on up to Fifth Avenue and, uh, you know, go into the mansion. And I mean, you could spend you could spend all day there. You could spend more than, a, you know, easily more than a full day in any of those locations, really kind of immersing yourself in a feel for the history of the company, company a feel for the history of their design. And you walk out, you know, if you look at what's in there carefully, you know, the watches, the jewelry, um, accessories, I mean, I, you know, they made some of the most beautiful lighters I've ever seen. Um, you know, you walk out understanding things about the, the evolution of taste, the evolution of design and the evolution of, 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 of luxury, both as an industry and as an ideal uh, that you can't really get anyplace else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'll, I'll just add to that quickly that like, they are trained in those places to be very nice to you, uh, whether you are buying anything or not. Uh, and I've had pretty great experiences at, at the Cartier Mansion here in New York uh, when I'm not buying anything. So, you know, I said earlier, it's great if you if you can afford to spend the money. If you can't, or if you just are choosing not to, uh, like Jack said, just go in and have a look around. And I think like it's free and it will be uh, tremendously fun. The great thing about Cartier is that they have never been in the hard sell business. You know, I mean, if uh, if Pierre Cartier is, uh, you know, trying to sell a giant stone that, you know, comes from uh, some Russian aristocrats uh, collection, you know, in New York in the 1920s, he's not going to say, oh, this is a really big stone. It's worth so, you know, this is how much it's worth, blah, 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 blah. He's going to tell you a story about it. He's going to tell you, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna romance it. He's not going to say, you should buy this because he's going to say, here's what this represents in terms of human interest, in terms of history. Um, and, uh, that's much, much more effective when you're operating on that level than, uh, than saying, okay, well, here's choice A, B, C, and D, and here's the, here's the discount. Yeah, totally agree. Well, for anybody who hasn't, uh, already ordered their copy of the magazine, again, you're going to hear it a million times in this episode, but, uh, go pick up a copy. Uh, Jack's story is fantastic. Again, like, I think I know Cartier pretty well. I, you know, before the pandemic sat about 20 feet away from Jack and we talked about Cartier pretty much nonstop, probably more than any two adult men should be talking to one another about Cartier. Um, 
<laughs> but I still learned a ton of new stuff reading and editing this story. So uh, I think you'll have a ton of fun. Highly recommend it. And uh, thank you, Jack, for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, you know, oh, I, I go on a little bit when I talk about Cartier. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, man. That's That's what you're here for. That's what we want. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Up next, we've got Danny Milton sharing the stories of the many passionate collectors he talked to for this issue. Hey, Danny, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me back, as usual. <laughs> You're becoming a, a regular uh, regular guest here. I think my job might be in uh, in jeopardy, but... Uh, no comment. Um, I'm under an NDA not to, uh, not to speak on this. So this is, this is officially a coup. It's in progress. Um, perfect. Uh, awesome, man. Well, I, I wanted to have you on, obviously we're talking all about the magazine today. Uh, and you, this was your first volume of the Hodinkee magazine as a member of the team. Uh, welcome to the beautiful, wonderful shit show that is producing the Hodinkee magazine. Hey, it's my it's my it's my name in print. I think to the uh, Steve Martin classic, The Jerk, where he says, "My name in print. Things are gonna start happening for me now." So, <laughs> honestly, I, like, I've always been a big print magazine guy, but like my my professional career is is mostly on the internet. I never get sick of seeing my name in print, man. It's it's the best feeling as as a writer. It's the best feeling in the world. Definitely a lifelong fantasy. Um, just one of those things where you always imagine it, whether it's a novel or a magazine, and it's it's incredible. And and Hodinkee magazine kind of combines the two. You know, the the quality and and the production of it. It's just it's the best. I'm so excited. That's awesome. Uh, well, I'm glad you are excited because. Uh, you ended up doing some some seriously heavy lifting this issue. Uh, we typically try to limit it to like one or two stories per person uh, to make the workload a little more bearable. Uh, you cranked out three amazing stories for this issue, uh, one of which had multiple components, the, the Why I Collect profiles. Right. So, you know, I wanted to have you on not just to talk specifically about like the details of each of the three stories, but a little more generally, because what you ended up doing kind of inadvertently, this was not, I promise, intentional. Uh, as the person who was assigning stories for this magazine, I promise you I did not think this far ahead. Um, I never do. Uh, you ended up being our collector's expert for this for this issue. Uh, you handled the profiles and the ads told to stories uh, from actual collectors of watches and of other things, right? I did, I did, and it wasn't necessarily just watches either, um, because the the uh, the collector series is basically usually everything but watches. Right, exactly. So I thought we could talk a little bit about collecting and what maybe you learned writing these stories, and then we can dive into the particulars of each one. Give give a couple minutes uh, of preview time to give people a sense of what they might what they'll find if they if they decide to pick up a copy. Does that does that work for you? Absolutely. All right, so. At a general level, right? Like you're a collector, I'm a collector. We're very different kinds of collectors. Uh, so are the five different people you profiled here um, and, and who you worked with here. You know, maybe from the four watch collectors you you spoke with, was was there anything that stood out to you as kind of like a perspective on collecting that hadn't really occurred to you before? And that that can either be 
one individual thing or it can be like a commonality between them that you just didn't realize was like core to to what you know collecting more broadly means i think it boils down to you know each one of the the people that i ended up talking to were vastly different in terms of how they came to collect in the first place so that ranged from having an intellectual curiosity in watches to begin with to um coming to watches like most do having them passed down and in another way uh reaching sort of a successful uh point in your life where you start thinking to yourself you know watches are a good way to sort of mark an occasion and then that mm. sort of explodes into a greater collecting habit so i found through everyone that i spoke to no matter what stage that it happened that there was one watch and one event whether that was a positive event or a sad event maybe related to death of somebody in the family um, that made a particular watch that much more important to them. Um, and they still appreciate every other watch in their collection, but I found that there was one particularly that stood out for each collector. And I think that's always so cool because when um, I talk to other collectors or I think about my, my own self, there probably is one or two watches that are a lot more important to me that I end up wearing more often but that doesn't take away from the other ones that I have that I wear in particularly different occasions. Um, but I, I love that there's this sort of elevated piece, one that sort of hangs above the rest. And I found that cut through all all of the people that I spoke with. Yeah, I, I, let's let's talk while we're on that subject about some of the particulars. So was was there any of the watches you you found or encountered through these collectors where the story really stood out to you as kind of embodying that? perspective you know really in, in particular well i think uh chef kevin gillespie was a huge you know I, I actually got to speak to him pretty in depth i think we had about almost a two-hour conversation and wow. and i had come to know him um we had run a watch spotting on on kevin when he was on top chef i guess toward the beginning of quote-unquote quarantine um, and that's yeah, how he's true. and how he came sort of on our radar. And I think it was you, Stephen, who'd spotted. I think you were were actually maybe watching it live when you when you saw it on TV. That sounds that <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> and I just found that the he told this long winded story that I unfortunately had to cut down um, a little bit for for the piece um, about how he came to own this Pelagos that he owned, and it was a product of he brought a watch in for service. Uh, he basically learned that he was going to be without a watch for a ex very extended period of time. Uh, at that moment, he wanted to buy his wife a watch. Um, and in the process of doing so, he bought his wife a watch. He brought it home. It was around Christmas time. He learned, in, in a way you'll see in the story, that it was not a very good gift to buy. Uh, when he was sort of suggesting what he may have bought for her, uh, learned that she had zero interest in receiving this gift, at which point he s sneakily went back to the watch store, returned said gift, um, and as fate would have it, uh, you don't get your money back on that specific purchase, but rather the uh, much-loved store credit. Um, so left with a uh, few options, um, he had come to appreciate Tudor uh, through some family ties, um, 
uh, his wife's father was in the military. Um, and I, as I was speaking to him, I realized that the moment that he bought uh, this watch, what I'm talking about is a Tudor Pelagos, and it was the um, the ETA version. So it's, as some people know, there's the, the Pelagos that has two lines of text and the Pelagos that has 500 lines of text. So this is the Pelagos with the two lines of text. Um, yep. And so at that moment, it, it, it occurred to me that it, this was just a watch purchase. And I think um, in retrospect, um, he had learned to appreciate a lot of the sort of... Um, the things that he didn't realize at the time that led to the purchase became apparent to him as time went on. And then as he wore the watch on Top Chef, it just, it, it gained a whole new level of meaning for him. And it's now a watch that it's probably his, it, I know from what he said, it's his favorite watch that he wears all the time. And it just goes to, to show you that you build memories with these things um, and they become more important than they ever were the moment that you, you purchase them. Um, this was a watch that he was sort of forced into buying, you know, with store credit. And now it's something that he would never give up, you know, in any situation. Yeah, I think I, I love that perspective that that a watch that you've lived with becomes more valuable over time. And and I think it's really interesting because we, you know, a popular topic on on this show is we talk about, you know, enjoying the watches you have versus always looking for something new versus selling things versus, you know, all these different ways to enjoy watches. And the idea that, there's that next thing on the horizon, but like weirdly the thing you already have is more valuable than that other thing, but that other thing can't become more valuable until you own it. Like there's, there's almost like a paradox there that, that I think is kind of fascinating. I don't know if there's any, any like real meat there, but I, I think that dynamic is at the very least a, a fascinating one to kind of think about for a little bit. Yeah. And it also plays into stuff that's only valuable to you. Um, I, right. I happen to, you know, have some watches and I'll just say I have the, um, the, the Rolex GMT, uh, the Batman. And there are days where I lament the fact, cause when I, when I bought it, I didn't buy it to be a value piece. I bought it to wear and enjoy it. And there's days when I lament the fact that it is as valuable as it is, um, given the fact that it's discontinued and what's going on in the secondary market with Rolex in general. Whereas I have other watches which don't have as much value to others, but have immense value to me, much more value than that watch actually does have to me. Um, and, and I think the Pelagos is a great example of that. I mean, that's your classic modern tool watch. Um, and it's not like you could sell it for a song somewhere, but he would never let it go. I don't think even if he could, but the fact that it's not necessarily the most valuable watch in the world, the personal value means just so much more. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. And there's a, a moment in this story with Kevin that, that I think is particularly powerful uh, where he talks about, you know, he gets to Top Chef, he brought the watch he was going to wear, it was this Pelagos, and the producers took it like as soon as he got to set and basically said like, you can't wear this watch, nobody's allowed to wear watches. Uh, anecdotally, I've heard that that's because they're worried about smart watches, about people like essentially cheating uh, by having access to data. Um, and so he like, fine, he gives them the watch, whatever. And then he gets to to the first day of shooting and notices that other chefs are wearing their watches. And he tells the producers to like cut the cameras for a minute because he needs to ask for his watch back, which I think is like, these producers must have thought he was an absolute nutcase that he was like, we have to stop shooting a like major television program for me to ask for my watch back. But the quote is he said to the producers, I have to have this. I need this. 
You've taken everything else. You have my wallet, my passport, and my soul. I at least need to have my watch. And like, that is such a powerful statement for the the totems that these things can become in our lives. And I, I don't know why, like reading that every time, like I feel it, like I feel it like deep in my bones uh, that I've, I've felt that way before. And I'm sure I'll feel that way in the future, you know, whether it's on that long haul flight or whether it's, you know, when you're away from your family or whatever, like there are those moments where you're just like, it's just me and you, man. Uh, and I, I think that's a really cool thing. It came across just as dramatically and, and, it, and it hit me when he said it, you know, just as much as it appears on the written page. Um, and it also uh, it, it bears keeping in mind that he's a Top Chef uh, alumnus. So he had uh, sort of no stage fright. He'd seen it all at that point. So for him, I can just yeah. imagine, you know, getting to know him a little bit, that it was not an issue for him to, to call for the producers to cut the cameras. I feel like he just knew he's like, you know what? You guys are messing with me. This is all some sort of mind game and you're not going to take my watch and I'm just not going to let yeah. this happen. We are going to cut Agreed. cameras now and I'm going to get it back. That yeah, I I think that's a great observation, and I'm I'm sure you're right. Um, cool. Well, I I want to make sure we get some time to talk about the Wyatt Collect profiles too. Um, this is personally one of my favorite parts of every Hodinky magazine. It's it's a chance to do in some ways what we try to do on this this podcast every week, which is is give people a look at the people of the watch world instead of just the watches themselves. Um, we're obviously interested in the watches and like there are plenty of great watches in this why I collect um you know the three folks we profiled I'll just give people a quick overview are uh Miles Fisher who's a Hodinkee radio alum um Madison Blank uh who is a well-known personality in in the fashion world um she's currently the head of uh brand relations at Goat she used to be the men's fashion director at Saks Fifth Avenue um and in addition to collecting watches she's a big streetwear collector uh, and then we profiled Austin Chu, and when I say we, I mean you profiled Austin Chu, uh, who's a Hong Kong-based entrepreneur. He's a big watch collector. Uh, people might know him on Instagram as Horaloop, um, huge in the AP world. Um, and so we got a really diverse set of watches, you know, everything from like MB&Fs and complicated Royal Oaks to, you know, green dial Daytonas and limited edition Grand Seikos. Um, so the watches are, are plenty cool, but uh, these three people have kind of an interesting dynamic. And I, I wanted to know, I mean, these three people didn't meet each other, interact in any way. But I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, having spoken to all three of them, do, do you think at all about the sort of like dynamic that is set up here? The three of them strike me all as like quintessential hustlers, you know, in like they are always working. Um, yeah. And I think that their collections respectively um, are a reflection of that idea. I mean, you've got two entrepreneurs and you've got Madison who's sort of risen up the ranks, you know, in men's fashion and is almost at, at you know, the, the apex of that right now. Um, and they're all working at such a high level that to be able to, to sit down with them and slow things down, even if it was just for 30 minutes, um, you get to see their passions sort of unfold in front of them and watches mean a lot to them. Um, and so that's, it's, it's great with people like that. And it's the same when we see any episode of talking watches where, where we, we have people like that on there, that that's where we get to slow things down a little bit. Um, and collecting is, is a process. It doesn't happen all at one time. And so it's even more interesting to, to sort of track when each watch came and how it came. 
but but that's how I what how I felt about each of them. And I thought I don't think that must not have been intentional putting this together that way, but they are all very similar personality types. Yeah, that's interesting. I I hadn't thought about that, but kind of in hindsight that strikes me as as spot on. Um I particularly enjoyed Madison's profile. Um mostly you know, she comes from the fashion world, which has many of the same sort of like idiosyncrasies and hangups as as the watch world, but in, in different ways. Um, and, and I like the fact that she, for lack of a better way, like gives zero fucks about what the watch world traditionally cares about. You know, like this idea that, you know, she wanted a red dialed uh, gold Rolex and they didn't make one. So like she got a dial refinished and like... Most of our listeners are probably like pulling their headphones off and wailing and gnashing their teeth as I say that. And like, fine, you can have that perspective. I respect that, whatever. Um, I say as I roll my own eyes. Uh, but like, she wanted a watch and she got it made. And like, as you said, like, she's a total hustler, but she also wants to do her thing. Uh, and I, I think in a watch world that often rewards sameness and rewards everybody wanting to buy the same eight watches. Uh, over and over and over again the fact that she's like i want what i want i like what i want that can be a gold royal oak with diamond indexes that's a family heirloom it can be the green dial daytona because that's not the daytona everybody wants or it can be a day date with a custom made dial because she just like wanted it and didn't see it out there and that's that's a fun approach to collecting i think yeah, and I related to her a lot. I mean, obviously we're we're the same age, which was which is fun, you know, to be able to speak to a contemporary that's doing some really amazing things. But I think that so much of what brought her into the world of collecting was was based on on her family. And I th- I really got the sense that she has a close relationship with her parents. She had a very close relationship with her grandfather. And I'm sure that, you know, enough people who have read a lot of the stories that I've been writing, you know, there, there's a good amount of these sort of first person pieces where I'm writing about my own life. And I came into watches through my family. And the reason that I, I have certain tastes, it, it stems from that. It makes the things more important. And I can I got that sense from her that this grew sort of germinated from from that. I mean, you can really feel, you know, how that has she even says that the first line of the story that collecting has always been in her DNA. And that can sound sort of like a cliche, but once we sort of unwrapped and unpacked what that really meant, it was true. And it was so cool to sort of listen to her. You know, it was it was an emotional part of our conversation when she spoke about her grandfather passing away and a watch that she remembers being on his wrist, you know, for her entire life growing up is now a watch that, you know, she thinks that she may not very well have liked had it not been for her grandfather having worn it, and it's something that she now wears all the time. And I relate to that entirely. You know, I wrote a story recently about Two-Tone Datejust where I even said, if not for this crazy family purchasing history of Two-Tone watches, would I even own a Two-Tone Datejust? Probably not. Um, But I, I, I think that I'm better off having had those experiences and I, and I love wearing it. And I related to that a lot. I, I want to make sure we find time cause we're, we're starting to reach the end of this segment, but uh, I want to make sure we find time to discuss the collectors, which as you mentioned up top is the column we do in every issue of the magazine that is about somebody who collects something other than watches. Um, and in this issue, we profiled a guy named Chris Martin, um, 
not the Chris <laughs> Martin from Coldplay. Uh, just a heads up. Uh, you know, we every, everybody who we talked to about this story, we were like, yeah, we're doing a profile of Chris Martin and his guitars. And people were like, holy shit, like the Coldplay guy? <laughs> no, like a guy who maybe is even more famous yep. and legendary in guitar circles. Um, his family has Martin guitars. Um, you know, the, the legendary uh, Pennsylvania-based maker of, of acoustic guitars. Uh, and the story was about his his personal collection, which evolved into being the Martin Guitar Museum. Um, so I wonder, you know, talking to him, you're used to talking to collectors. You're also a guitar guy. Um, how, how did you kind of approach this story when, when we first threw it your way? So I got the sense... Um that Chris was a, was a storyteller, you know, just having, um, seen him, seen videos of him speaking before. Um, and I was very much prepared to sort of let him guide the conversation so that I wouldn't miss. I I love little nuances of stories. And I find that often if you control the conversation too much, you lose those. And I wanted as much as I could. Um, and so, you know, I didn't go in with it with a ton of information about about him. And so there was a lot of fun surprises like you would never think that the CEO of the Martin Guitar Company is a quote unquote terrible guitar player that threw in the towel. I mean, that's just hilarious. Yeah. I mean, to want to collect <laughs> something that you don't even get the enjoyment out of its utility is just fascinating to me. But it also just goes to show you um you know, what collecting is. I mean, people who collect art aren't painters and a well-made guitar is a piece of art. And especially, you know, this is a, for everyone who hasn't seen this issue yet, this is a photo heavy, you know, feature. And there are some beautiful guitars here and they're guitars that were built, I'm talking early 1800s that are still very much standing and playable to this day. And that's just an incredible concept. You know, from my perspective, as, as somebody who got to read this story as as it was kind of germinating in, in a few different drafts, the fact that he grew up kind of just like fully immersed in this world, like he has been soaking up guitars and guitar knowledge his entire life. It's in his blood, uh, despite how cliche that sounds. It, it genuinely is. Um, it, it almost feels inevitable that he would end up collecting guitars, but I appreciated that like really nowhere in the story did I get a sense from him that he was doing this out of like obligation or because he thought it was expected of him or that this was just what he should do. Uh, it's so cool to see somebody who's like multi-generational like this in, in a given category still be so enthusiastic. Like he seems, I, I didn't talk to him, but I'm wondering, I guess, from your perspective, is he really like still that excited about it? He is. I mean, these stories for him, they are in his blood. And I, and I, I think I got to, to, to ask him about this at the end. It's incredible, obviously, and any historian can sort of trace back, you know, fantastic stories about anything. But we're talking about these really specific instances in the guitar world that sort of trace the, the true American dream, you know, hopping on a ship from, from Europe or from England and, and Ireland and coming over to America and starting a guitar business. And starting a very successful guitar business. And for him to be able to speak about his great, great, great grandfather in a way, you know, you could be talking about any historical figure. I don't know what my relatives were doing in the early 1800s. I have no record of that. Um, but there are records of guitar sales and important guitar sales. 
Um, and all of those are kept by the company. And for him to be able to not just speak about the history of the company, but the history of his family, that's what really came through. And it's just one of those things I say it over and over again. I said it about Madison. I say it about this, that family connection makes the collecting aspect much more important to somebody. And I think you can really feel that with him. And what you were saying about how, you know, he didn't feel he was doing this out of duty. I think in some way he was sort of a, a rebel early on. This was not someone who wanted to grow up in the family business. He was a child of divorce. And I think he felt that the last thing he wanted to do as sort of a rebellious teenager was was join the family business. And I think the far, he went sort of the, the opposite direction of that and wanting to become a marine biologist, moved across the country to Los Angeles, and I think realized on his own that that, that was in his blood, that it was something that he, he couldn't run away from. And it was actually something, it wasn't something he didn't want to do. It was something he very much did want to do. But he came at it from, from an honest perspective and he went into the shop and worked on the guitars themselves, cutting wood, working in the factory, and sort of got into it at the ground level, even though he could have walked in at the corporate level, you know, I'm sure very easily, um, but did it in a, in a way that I think was was super interesting. And, and the story is more interesting because of it. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. I think, you know, this is a case where we can build a story all we want as a story about a guitar collector. But as with hopefully most things in, in this magazine, uh, it's about a lot more than that. It's it's about a person. It's about their journey. It's about their family. It's about the way they relate to the world, and the the small but significant part, and in some cases not so small but significant part, that objects like guitars or watches or or what have you can can play in that. So, yeah, I, I you know would heavily encourage everybody to to pick up their copies in the magazine and check these stories out. I think if you're a person who collects things. Uh, Again, whether it's watches or, or other things, uh, you're gonna really find these find these uh, exciting and relatable, and hopefully you can see a little of yourself in these, and hopefully see maybe what you do and don't love about collecting, and just get get a little bit of a perspective on the community that we're we're all a part of in in one way or another. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> well, I, I'll go ahead and say you did say it better in the actual <laughs> magazine. So people should read the stories. Uh, they're, they're much more interesting than I can possibly make them sound here. But I appreciate you giving us a peek behind the curtain here and, and a little more detail on, uh, on what went into this, this reporting. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for, for having me on again to be able to do that. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks, Danny. Talk to you soon. See ya. And to take us home this week, we've got Joe Thompson talking about his interview with Grand Seiko's Shinji Hattori. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Fine, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation for, for quite a few reasons, but uh, not least of all, because I can't believe it. We did it again. We got another magazine out the door some way, somehow. <laughs> Thanks to you, man. Honest to God. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to me and to literally everyone else on the team. I mean, I think people may not realize that everyone at Hodinkee works on the Hodinkee magazine. I mean, it's it's an effort, obviously, of our editors, but then the photography team, uh, you know, we have our ad sales team. We have even like our finance team dealing with invoices and booking locations and whatever. Like this is, this is really a full 360 degree effort. So I'm, uh, 
I'm excited to have it out there, and I'm I'm glad that you and I can sit down and talk about what's one of my my personal favorite stories in in the magazine. Well, thank you. So the story we'll we'll set the story up here for people. The story is called The Grand Gamble of Shinji Hitori. The great grandson of Seiko's founder is betting on the firm's future on its luxury watch brand Grand Seiko. Um so basically what this is is it sort of parallel profiles of Shinji Hitori, the CEO and chairman of Seiko, and then the brand Grand Seiko, right? Exactly. And you've been you've been intimately familiar with Seiko for for quite a while too, right? Oh, for sure, Stephen. Um, my first trip to Japan uh, to see Seiko was in 1981. So that's how, how far back it goes. Um, and what interested me about this story is because of this grand gamble, um, what the story is about is the fact that uh, Seiko um, is really changing its identity in the marketplace. Uh, mm. It is, a, it is a, a very interesting story to me from a number of angles, but um, I think every, all of our uh, Hadinki readers and listeners know um, that they're making a major shift from Seiko as a mid-range mass market uh, quartz watch, which, has been, which was its identity over the past 40 years, to make Grand Seiko the new face of of Seiko. And now this is a move. So he is taking Shinji Hattori, who is the great grandson of the founder of Seiko, um, is taking Seiko to a place on international markets where it has never been before. And uh, it is, he, he had to sign off on this dramatic uh, change of direction. And so um, that's why I wanted to profile him in the magazine. We have covered this story uh, all along at Hadinki. Um, and for the sort of the, the what, where, and why of this, we, have, uh, we did, a, we did a, a piece in our December 2018 issue um, about it. But what we really didn't cover was the who. And that was yeah. the opportunity here was to uh, to spend some time. The original plan was for me to go to Tokyo, of course, uh, talking to him uh, about what this was like for 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 him to make this decision that no other uh, executive, certainly no other member of the Hattori family, but no other uh, none of the executives within Seiko wanted to make. So it's a dramatic shift. And, uh, and we were looking to, to find out more about it. Yeah. And what, one of the things you touch on in the story that you just kind of mentioned in the, in that answer is this is on the international stage, whereas Grand Seiko was originally conceived as a domestic brand and it was only available domestically for decades. And so, you know, we may think of, oh, you know, Grand Seiko goes back to the 1960s, but on the global scale, that's not really the case. This is still a relatively new kind of direction for this company at any sort of scale, right? Certainly one of the factors in this um, is that is the mechanical aspect of Grand Seiko. Um, in fact, they make Grand Seikos in, in courts as well. But the big push clearly here 
on international markets is for the mechanical grand Seiko. And so, and, and I think one of the reasons to your point, uh, one of the reasons that Shinji Hattori made this shift is that there was this dramatic, there was this disconnect between the image of Seiko on international markets and the image of Seiko on the domestic market. And be, Seiko, Seiko has, lo has a long history of being a, a manufacturer of mechanical watches. Their, their first mechanical watch, the Laurel, predates World War I. That's, it, it's in 1913. I mean, that's, that's, that's earlier than many, many, many Swiss watch firms in terms of producing mechanical wristwatch. I'm talking about a wristwatch here. Um, and so they, they, Seiko produced Japan's first mechanical wristwatch. So they had this legacy um, that went uh, throughout their history. They were always, um, let's say, slightly behind the Swiss. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in the early years, the, for the, the Americans and the Swiss, we're talking about a company that was founded in 1881. Um, but, but, but to the point about Grand Seiko, at a certain point after the war, in the 1950s, Seiko wanted to step up its mechanical watch game. And they got to the point where they felt, we are now competitive. We are as good as the Swiss. And that's what led to the creation of Grand Seiko. This was, this was the best Seiko. And it had tolerances that were stricter than Kosk. So the, an element in this whole story is that, okay, fine, uh, they, <laughs> they, they, fi they finally uh, master their mechanical watch technology um, literally 10 years before they themselves, ironically, uh, go on a mission to destroy the mechanical watch business. Because in, <laughs> in 1960, they launched Grand Seiko. In 1969, they launched the Seiko Astron, the world's first quartz analog watch. And there's, 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 there's lots of ironies here. Fast forward to a certain point, it is quartz, it's electronics that makes Seiko uh, internationally famous. And by 1977, which is my first year covering the watch world, Seiko that year became the largest watch company in the world. $700 million, 18 million pieces. Um, they, were, they were it, they were the game. So, um, Fast forward even more, uh, Quartz is their, is their ticket to ride, um, and they start to neglect the mechanical. In fact, uh, for a certain, certain period in the 80s, they no longer made mechanical Grand Seikos. But another irony is the mechanical then comes back um, globally. We all, we all know that story. Um, Quartz, Seiko's image, as a quartz watch producer over time, because it's an electronic product, starts to, and for lots of other reasons, uh, starts to erode the, the quartz technology, uh, the cheap watches, um, everybody can make them. Um, and so Seiko as a, a uh, Seiko's brand image did erode. And so the, ultimately the decision came, let's say at the turn of the, of the new millennium is uh, here, here, here's, the Swiss coming back swiftly on, on as, as a luxury watch. Um, and Seiko is starting to, starting to, to get lumped into, uh, as, 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 as people might remember, ads from, K, let's say, Kmart, you know, or Walmart, you know, or Target. 
Seiko Citizen Boulevard, 50% off. And so from, for Seiko's management, this was always a concern. Nobody wanted to move away from the court's base and the court's technology. There was, the feeling was that they could not compete. Um, and it was, it, was, it was Shinji Hattori who becomes president in 2003 of Seiko. He is, as I said, the great grandson. And he, he, one of the reasons for sure that he articulates is that he was just concerned that the image of Seiko in Japan, where, where, they, had, where they, they were a luxury product, with Grand Seiko and with Crador, uh, these two fine watches, uh, both, of, both of which had mechanical watch movements, that that image of Seiko in Japan was quite different than the image of Seiko that they themselves had marketed and exported around the world. And so that was one yeah. uh, major decision in making this shift. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really incredible look at as you said the the sort of the what and the the how in some ways but the the who is really the center of this story and you know you mentioned that your first trip to japan to visit seiko was 1981 do you remember the first time you met shinji hattori or any member oh, of the hattori oh, family for that for that matter of the hattori family oh oh sure and my you know uh, Regio Hattori, my first interview with him was in 1984. Regio Hattori was um, Shinji's uh, uncle. Just to quickly uh, do the chronology here, um, Shinji's father was also CEO, president, and they, they, they go by president and, and CEO, but, but president was the title. Um, again, I backdrop, Kintaro Hattori, founds the company in 1881. Uh, and then all the way through, there is a Hattori family member who has the title of president of the company. And Kintaro, K-I-N-T-A-R-O, is the founder. Uh, then Shinji's father, Kentaro, K-E-N-T-A-R-O, he becomes president in 1974. He's president from 1974 okay. to 1983, which is the heyday of Seiko's rise. But then in 1983, he moves up to chairman and his brother, Regero, uh, in 1983 becomes president. And Regero stays president all the way up from 83 to 2003. And so my, in my, my encounter with the Hattori family, it was, yes, the first time I ever interviewed uh, a Hattori family member was 1984. It was a one-on-one. -on -one. Believe it or not, in those days, <laughs> there, there were no handlers. The PR people weren't there. It was just, this was, it's hard to believe today. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incomprehensible you know, And it's, now. it's the way it used to be. I've, I've mentioned here in one of the previous interviews, uh, uh, my, my first and only interview with Patrick Heinegger of Rolex <laughs> was just one-on-one -on -one in a room, just the two of us. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to think about, but that is you, that, that was to greatly to my advantage back in those days. But yeah, that was my first interview with a Hattori family member. And then, and then I mean, even since then, there've only been two at the top of the company. But, but, uh, but Shinji comes into the company 
Uh, not until, interestingly, his father steps down as president. Then uh, he spent the first, he's an economist, and he spent the, fir the first um, nine years of his life uh, for, with, uh, with a, uh, a big Japanese trading company. And then when his father was no longer um, CEO, he joins the company. But one of the most striking things about the first interview was, and I can't even remember because it, ha it happened in 2004. And I don't know if I got a tip or I stumbled on, stumbled on it. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I remember being struck by the fact that he just offered that he loved American music. I'm sure I asked him. Somebody must have. But, but he, 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 uh, one of the intriguing things about him is that he, he loves American pop music from the 1950s. He adores Elvis Presley. He can talk, and we did in that very first interview. And you know, that's that's my generation as well. And you you, you can get into arguments about Brenda Lee versus Connie Francis, you know, <laughs> and and you know Paul Anka versus Neil Sedaka. It's like this, and 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 he's really quite conversant, and he's he, he's musical. He has he has a very very nice voice, and he he's also a person who performs. He's an artist. Um, <clears throat> Uh, a performance artist, I would say, you know. Uh, so, so yeah, there, there was that. There, there was it was clear from, to me at that point that this 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 is this is a different Hattori than what we had known. I think it's really fascinating because you know you mentioned doing the interview one on one right back in the eighties was was crazy. I mean, now any of these watch companies, but the Japanese watch companies in particular, there's so much structure around everything. I mean, there's multiple publicists everywhere, you know, everything has to get cleared, you kind of have to, you know, do very thorough fact checking with these companies, if you want to get any real information, everything's very corporate, according to message. And to have somebody at the helm of this company, and and no less, he's he's the family member, you know, of the, of the founder. And the fact that he like, he has personality, and like, it's not just he's not just Mr. Seiko, like he has his own kind of thing. And He's not afraid to be himself, and also he's not afraid to like inject little bits of himself into the brand in in certain ways. Uh, and I think that's that's really unique, at least from my my perspective. You no, know, I, I I agree, and I wrote right away about it. And, and the other part of that first interview um, uh, to the whole to the the main theme here is that at that time, of course, we're talking what two thousand four. The mechanical has come back. And we're, there's already a cult forming around Grand Seiko. Let's take it just American. American businessmen are going to uh, Japan. Um, they've heard about this, this sort of this amazing mechanical watch that Seiko makes, which, which was sort of jarring. Really? Seiko made, you know, back at the end in the, in the 1990s. Um, and they come back. And then on the, 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 the forums at the time, there is developing a huge uh, following for these watches. And there was a discussion, I can tell you, because I had been so long covering Seiko, um, over the years I had gotten to know, you know the various executives, I would be going out there every two or three years to Japan, and then you'd see them around. And Seiko was the story. I covered it extremely closely. Um, and so if you go on a trip, you know, as I would go uh, on my own, um, uh, we didn't travel in groups in those days. I would say, want to come out and we want, here's the story we want to do. Will you do it? Et cetera, et cetera. You're spending, you've got real quality time with, with the, the top executives. 
And there was a debate at that time about should we, uh, should we emphasize the mechanical? And I can remember asking, I can remember Sutomo, Sutomo Mitomi, the president then, Tom Mitomi, as he liked to be called. Um, and his, his, he, he, he would say to me, no. And I, I would say to him, why, why are you not doing this? Why, you know, uh, and he would ask, what do you think? Because, you know, you'd be off the record. You'd just be conversing uh, about the market, about the business. And he would say, well, what do you think? What's it like in the States? Do you think this would be successful? And I kept saying, yes, it already, it already is. There is a cult following already. But they were extremely hesitant to do it. And in the very first mm -hmm. interview, I said to Shinji Hattori, whom I had just met, um, will you consider introducing Grand Seiko mechanical watches uh, outside of Japan? And he told me, boom, right away. Yes, we will do this. I intend to do this, but it will take time. And, um, and it mm. did. It took six years uh, for various reasons. I mean, and we won't go into them now, but there were various reasons where they could not instantly automatically tool up, et cetera. Um, but right. he then brought right away a, a, a new attitude. Before the attitude was, uh, we have to stay in our lane there was, um, I mean, I have a whole theory about the, the heroes of the, of the, of the, the Quartz Watch era. Um, I mean, to a man, in my view, um, they missed. It's very, very hard. I don't mean it as a, a, uh, as a criticism so much as um, they, they missed. Even Nicholas Hayek, I mean, was, was, was late to recognize the, the fact that the mechanical was going to come back. And that was certainly true. Of, of, uh, of, of the Seiko executives. That was certainly true of Swiss watch executives like, like uh, Lando Monique Perrin, I would li list Nicholas Hyatt, Jerry Grinberg at Novato, all of the heroes of the Quartz watch uh, era. You know, you get wedded to that technology. Um, but, but Shinji Hattori, uh, for his own reasons, did not feel that way. And, and mm. from the beginning, he, he just said to me flat out on the record, yes, we will do this. And that was a, that was a, and I, and I covered at the time and I said, no, this is a, this is a big change. Um, and, um, and then it brings us up to, to, uh, to this grand gamble uh, that we're talking about. But, but there's no doubt that, that he was the one who, um, who validated let's say whatever, whatever, uh, whatever group in the company said, you know what, we've got, we've got to do this. We've, you know, there's no reason for us not to compete with the Swiss, yeah. uh, with our technology, our, our, our high mechanical technology. Yeah. It's super fascinating. I, I wonder, you touch on it in the story a little bit specifically, um, you know, you spoke to Akio Naito, um, who's one of the top executives at, at Seiko um, and used to be a part of the Seiko team here here in the U.S. Um, and you, you talked to Akio Naito and, and he mentions this idea that, you know, Shinji Hattori was always so proud of Seiko's history as a fine watchmaker and that it may have like bothered him a little bit to think that Seiko's image in the rest of the world wasn't this shining beacon of fine watchmaking, but was instead, you know, quality, affordable, whatever, you know? Um, do, you, do you think that was a big part of this, that outside of the obvious, like, business decisions here, that some of it was just 
pride in the the thing and I don't mean pride in a bad way I mean pride in in the thing his family had created and wanting to kind of like share it with the world and shine a spotlight on that's it that's exactly right that's definitely a factor um this was a hatori um who just felt that 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 grand seiko should not just be uh a jap a a, a product for the domestic market and that was just in in, in one in one sense it's, it's, it, it it was as simple as that and so the elements in that are that's right that that we have this long history of mechanical watchmaking um that we have not promoted but we should have um and uh so there's there's also yeah there's a certain amount of family pride in that the concern about Seiko's image is also part of a family pride. He told me in the interview uh, that we had for this story uh, that his father early on, this is amazing because his father um, died very young. He died in 1987. But, but the father was concerned about the fact that as an electronic product, the um, the price point of the early quartz products would erode, and that is exactly what happened. And the father saw that it it, it began in the 1985 Plaza Accords. I can get into the weeds here. I don't want to, it, but but that was a, a, a it was essentially um, it, when when uh, sort of the Western countries decided uh, that they wanted to, in effect. Uh, compete against the, the the Japanese yen, and they and they drove up the Japanese yen. Uh, it was a deliberate policy mm -hmm. in order to compete, and 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 that that that's called endaka in Japan, high yen, and of course that hurts all exports when uh, the value of the Japanese yen uh, appreciates. So um, there would be waves of endaka that followed, and um, Kentaro Shinji's father. Uh, was concerned about the impact that that would have on the image of the brand. So he carried, he brings that to this decision as well. Um, and that was a, early on, he talked to me about that. And he said, no, that his father, he remembers his father expressing concern about that. Because the early, the early quartz watches were considered, you know, really high quality pieces, you know. Now, Seiko yeah, contributes right. to this. I, we can't just let, you know, them off the hook. Um, and Seiko in those days was a, 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 a manufacturing driven, driven culture, um, not marketing driven, driven. Um, and so that the, the, the engineers pretty much were in charge. The factories decided what to make. And it was the job of the marketers in Tokyo and globally to sell it. And so what this led to was overproduction. Um, and, and overproduction led to uh, a, 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 a robust gray market uh, for Seiko, a certain addiction to those 18 million units so that they, ne they can never go yeah. down. And this also helps to erode the brand image. But, 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 mm. um, and then, and then, and then the rest of the story comes. We, we then get into the developments, let's say since 2010, but in 2010, um, Shinji was able to, Seiko, uh, I should say, but under under the the policy that Shinji had had um, had, had approved, uh, then launched Grand Seiko internationally, and um, 
then the next the next sort of thing that happens is that um, so so that's a good thing. So now now the rest of the world is getting to see and again, you know, you don't have to go to Tokyo or to go to Japan to buy a Grand Seiko. Um, so Grand Seiko is now, you know, in, 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 in the United States, which always was Seiko's number one overseas market and also in Europe. <clears throat> but, um, but, but small, no doubt. I mean, certainly small. And then the, the, yeah. the, the flip side of this was that the erosion of, of the core Seiko brand, that, that was the strong identity of Seiko um, throughout what, the modern era from the 1970s on, um, just started to erode because of new factors in the mid-range market, like uh, smartwatches and wearables, like e-commerce. Um, so that that it became clear that the middle of the 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 um, the global watch market was never going to be as strong as it had been before. That 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 mm. scene had shifted. That, that and that 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 the frustration that 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 Shinji Hitori started to feel is uh, well by God you know if 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 the shift is 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 to luxury um, we should make the shift we just what we what we yeah. have to do it's more messaging than manufacturing we manufacture a great product um, now we have to just make it available internationally another factor Stephen in this I think is that that Shinji Hitori brings a, a, a pride not only in, in the family and in the, the company, but in, in all of Japanese culture. There was, I think, a feeling yeah. prior to in, 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 the, in the 70s and 80s and the 90s that, that, that Seiko's sort of culture was too foreign, too foreign for Americans and Europeans. Um, so that a lot of the elements about the Grand Seiko story, you know, the design, um, the, the nature, uh, just the, 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 the using of Japanese crafts, Japanese history, Japanese uh, uh, architecture, uh, Japanese culture. Um, all of these elements that are that 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 they are now that they now boast about, um, you you know, uh, there was a hesitation in previous management to to think that that would that that was sellable on the international market. I believe this, and mm. and that's another factor. And whereas he is proud of the fact, and th that there has been, I mean, there has been, you know, globalization has brought this appreciation. For, for other cultures and all the rest. And so, you know, you, you can use, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the arts of making swords in the samurai era, you know? Um, right. And Mount Wate. Yeah, and in a funny way, I think that has actually become Grand Seiko's kind of like best marketing tool. And it's, it's maybe most appealing thing is that the watches feel Japanese. They don't feel like a company in Japan trying to make a copy of a Swiss watch. It feels like a different approach to watchmaking. It's a different approach to craft, to tradition, to design, to all of these things. And, you know, I think for some collectors who are either, you know, they're already deep in collecting Swiss watches and they're looking for something different, or for people who maybe don't connect with that sort of approach, or 
for people who maybe aren't even interested in watches to start, but they're interested in Japanese culture, and they come to watches through Seiko because they see that connection. So it's it's interesting to hear that there was hesitation on that for decades because it seems to me that that's now maybe their greatest their greatest strength. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and so that's why you know uh, uh, he is an agent of change. Um, and that was mm-hmm. one, the, one really the main theme of the piece was just to to present this 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 executive occasionally as you, as, as, as as the readers know we do profile uh, some uh, top. Uh, uh, watch executives in the magazine and so uh, he was worthy yeah. of that and to be honest though another interesting thing about this was it, it was sort of this is sort of foreign as well this american style hey come on in let's sit and chat let me ask you all these personal questions this <laughs> this this is yeah. sort of also you know it um it's a bit different and uh um so that uh I appreciate the fact that um, that that he was willing to do that. I mean, he and I at this point. I mean, I've known him for 16 years, been covering them, and and you know, it, it's on. I, I think there is a, a a comfort zone now. It's first it's first name. I mean, I call him Mr. Hattori, of course, but it's it's it. He knows he he knows my history with the company, and so um, uh, he was I I think willing to talk about about some of this stuff. But but even that, I mean, other you know. Um, off the record, I mean, he, he was always fine, but my, you know, what, what we had to, to get approved here <laughs> right. by him and the other powers at B there is that, uh, that, that we're going to, uh, <clears throat> we want to talk about him and his love of Elvis, et cetera. Whoa, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. where are you guys yeah. going with this? Well, yeah. I wonder, you know? I, I wonder thinking about that, like what, what was, and maybe this is a good thing to end on here. What? What was the most interesting thing you learned about him in this interview that either you didn't know about him or you were kind of shocked that he was willing to put on the record? Well, that's a good question that I didn't anticipate. Um, <laughs> you can think about it. Well, for a minute. I, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering my instant reaction after after we had the interview. And to be honest with you, I was surprised at how honest he was about the concern that his father had about the direction of courts. Um, Mm. And that essentially what he was saying is his father had a concern that courts was not going to be the real answer long-term. I had never heard a a Seiko executive say that before. Um, Mm. And um, it informs, as I say, it informs the decision that he is making um, and 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 uh, to do that. So I, I would say I think it, that 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 to me was the the most surprising thing. That it's clear Amazing. that that you know that they've they've they've, they've discussed this long term, and um, that it, to pivot. I mean, to for for a, for Seiko to pivot to a certain extent. I don't want to say away from court. It's, they're not pivoting away from courts. Uh, they're, Corsica will remain. There still is tremendous interest in the market in Seiko, but the recognition that they need as a full line watch company that makes literally every technology in horology, and they're very proud of that, um, including, yeah. you know, right, 
spring drive, just all of it. They do, they do, they do all solar, you name it, they make it. But, um, that, that, that I, I was surprised at that. The other thing that I think Amazing. we do have to emphasize here that the, the, the word grant, the word gamble is used, uh, with it's a, quite deliberately in the title of that story. There is no guarantee yeah. <laughs> that, right. that, that the world wants a high mechanical psycho watch. This is what the gamble is. Um, so far, so good, but it's early days yeah. and he knows it and Seiko executives know it. Um, but uh, there was resistance as I, as I talk about, both, both in the reporting we've done for Hidinki so far and in the piece, there's, there, there, there's, there's some resistance even in the trade or there had been uh, to, to yeah. well, I, I, you know, what, 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 another mechanical watch? What do I need as an, you know, as, as, as an American retailer right. with another mechanical watch? I need I need Seiko to be as one CEO told me this is this is uh, back uh, in 2010 and, and 11 when when it was launched is I I don't need I don't need them to bring bring me a mechanical watch I need them to stay where they're strong damn it down in the you yeah. know down in the 500 600 dollar category so uh, so we'll see how it goes but uh, he's betting he's betting the future of the company on it it's pretty. It's pretty amazing and it's fun. I mean, in the in the watch era, we talk so much about history. It's it's fun to be watching, you know, as a journalist and a collector, it's it's fun to be watching in a moment when things are feel like they're in flux. You know, it feels like there there will be an outcome here and this will be a thing in 20, 30, 40 years that we talk about. Um and it's interesting to kind of have have a spotlight on that in the moment while it's happening. So I, I really recommend, and I, I say this, you know, personally as well as professionally, uh, go check out this story. Pick up a copy of the magazine. The story is the grand gamble of Shinji Hattori. Um, and yeah, Joe, I mean, I said it at the top, but I, I think the way you wrote this, uh, it doesn't read like a standard executive profile. You know, it really, it feels much more dynamic than that. It feels extremely personal. Um, and I just think the story is in addition to being informative, is extremely charming and fun to read and has has a really great narrative to it. So uh, for all those reasons, everybody should go check it out. But uh, thanks for thanks for giving us the peek behind the curtain. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. I'm only as good as my sources. And in this case, I had a good source. <laughs> <laughs> spoken spoken like a true journalist, Joe. That's That's a classic move right there. Uh, perfect. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, hopefully, hopefully get some feedback on the story for you soon. All right. Super. Thanks, Stephen.